Destination, please. Welcome to Religious Not Spiritual, the podcast where Matt Cook, a disillusioned preacher, reads through the entire Bible. We pick up today's reading at Luke 3.10. We talk about what a gospel is and get excited about utopian ideas like the kingdom of God. Jesus begins a new relationship with the Holy Spirit, and I say Essany wrong about a thousand times. And the crowds asked him, that is, John the Baptist, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized, and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Yesterday when we were talking about this passage, right, this foundational ethic that John is bringing that, of course, Christians don't, you know, follow. Like, it's, it's, I don't think there's really any religious group that straight up follows this sort of, you know, if you have two, give to one who has none principle. Um, and if there are any, then they're probably not very powerful and influential in a political way because that's not a good way to make money. So we see John, who's supposed to be this forerunner character, preparing the way uh, for the new Christ innovation on religion. And, and he's setting this foundation, this foundational ethic, which is super, super simple, and it seems really hard to argue against, and nobody ever does it. Certainly no Christian group that I've ever been a part of has done it, although I have been a part of, uh, you know, little movements and attempts to try to do that. Um, but people don't like it when you do that. They call you socialists, which is funny. But, but what we got here, John, is like setting the foundation for this kind of radical, common fairness. But who is John talking to? First, the general population, but also these two representatives of empire. These two representatives, the mechanisms of the empire's oppression over the people. The tax collectors, who provide the empire with their economic exploitation, and the soldiers, who hang the threat of violence that makes it all, you know, legitimate. And it's interesting that Luke is having these two people come and ask specifically, what are we supposed to do? And I think it's because, if, 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 if I'm understanding the context here, odds are these tax collectors and soldiers are not Romans, right? They're people from the local colonized population, right? These are Jewish people who are in this situation where they, kind of have, where they have, are being forced to serve the empire. And they're like, well, what are we supposed to do? And he just gives a very clear and simple, collect no more than you're authorized to, and don't extort by threats. And that really kind of reminds me of a verse in the Proverbs. It goes something along the lines of, envy not the oppressor, nor choose any of their ways. It's almost like he's giving a, he's definitely laying a foundation here. A foundation not only for things to come, but also a reimagining of how do we, how are we supposed to live as people who are living in a system, under a system that is, uh, exploitative, that is naturally violent, especially those of us who are in some way complicit in it. How are we supposed to go about our lives understanding this? And I mean, on the one side, we could deny that the system is oppressive and exploitative at all. And we can say, no, Rome is great. I mean, come on, the friggin 
aqueducts have never run so well. Or we can say, no, we recognize our situation here, but we can try to live through this system faithfully, you know, looking and working for the day it all falls. But that's just me reading into the text, of course. Let's continue. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he may be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John pointing ahead to what's going on. Hey, look, it's another one of those verses that people say have to do with hell, right? Because gather the wheat into the barn. That's all the good people. And the chaff he will burn. That's all the rejected people with unquenchable fire. See? Hell. Yeah, because chaff burns forever and ever, all men, right? So, with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Ooh, I have to stop here. Because this, this might be the first time in this book that this word is used. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Good news. So if, if you've heard anything coming out of the church, you must have heard the word gospel before. Gospel is like one of the coolest words that the Christians ever co-opted. So, so, so the original word for this gospel in Greek is something like euangelion right? And if you kind of take the prefix in the Greek word and you put them together, it, it looks like it says something like good news or good message or good story. And it, it, was a, it was not the most common Greek word at the time. The Christian communities really took it and ran with it uh, to, to use it like as a container to encapsulate what this whole Jesus thing was. But, but the word itself is so cool because it was used for, and the way that I like to look at it, it's, it's, a, it's a story or a news or tidings that changes everything. So they would use this word, for example, when, you know, um, a, a, a new king is installed on the throne. All right, here comes out this, this euangelion. Listen, here's a gospel coming out. New king, everything's different. Or, or, or you get the news that some battle in a far-off place that really, really affects your city. Uh, the messenger comes in and says, here's the good news. We won. So the idea of a gospel is, 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 a, is a, a news or a story or a way of thinking about the world, a narrative that changes everything. So that's what John's bringing here. He's bringing this, this gospel, this story. If you look at the world in this way, if you... Give your tunic, and if you if you live in such a way so that it does not profit you, that you, you don't seek after that, it'll change everything. Now, this, this message is actually really, really in line with, you know, how the Essenines thought. I mentioned the Essenines yesterday, maybe, or the day, I don't know when. But, but, you know, in the Bible, it talks about these three main uh, religious Jewish groups at the time of Jesus. Uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, those are the ones that it mentions. It, it never mentions the Essenes, who were around back then, maybe not as popular, but that's because they were all into renunciation. Many of them lived out in the wilderness. They practiced things like voluntary poverty, in, uh, which is really, really in line with where uh, John is going. Um, it doesn't mention in this book, but in the other Gospels, it says that, you know, he's 
just eating locusts and living uh, in the wilderness dressed in camel hair. So, so he seems very much to be an Essenine. Not only that, but like full immersion, that whole baptism thing was an Essenine practice. So, so it just seems really, really clear to me that John, whatever historical figure this guy's based on, must maybe, I shouldn't say must, was an Essenine. Um, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls is, is considered an Essenine library. So, so it makes me also think then that Jesus would have been connected with this group. And that actually kind of makes sense as to why they're not mentioned. Because whenever we read the Gospels, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are always pit as kind of the enemies of Jesus. So, so, so if, 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 if this Christianity thing was a little bit descendant from the Essenines, you can kind of see how they would paint the other two rival groups as the bad guys. And, you know, since they're all about renunciation, just sit quietly on their own outside. But it does make me think, though, that a reader of this Gospel... Um, or, or of the other ones that mentioned John, if they would have recognized that without it having to be said, if, if everybody knew, oh yeah, look, a guy in camel hair uh, doing full immersion, preaching that you should give up your uh, worldly goods. That's, that's those, those Essenines down there over by those uh, caves or whatever. So, so, so there we have John. We have John appearing, and he's giving this gospel, this gospel. And I, th I believe that any transformative story, any transformative narrative, way of looking at the world, uh, piece of fiction even, can be a gospel in our lives. That's one of the reasons why I'm still into this book in some ways, because of the power that it has to transform things. So he's preaching his gospel. With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Because there's the problem with gospels. When you come out with a, hey, let's look at the world this way and live this way sort of thing, it will probably threaten whoever is profiting off of the way we're looking at it now. So since John is coming out and saying, get rid of your tunics and stop being so evil and leave your brother's wife alone, Herod is like, I can't deal with that. Off to prison, you go. Because, because this, this sort of, this sort of um, gospel, if it catches on, a kingdom will fall, right? If, 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 if all the people in the crowd who were listening to John actually were like, hey, that's actually a good idea. We should totally, if I have enough, I should give it up and give to everyone who doesn't have enough. If everybody did that, then Herod's kingdom completely collapses, right? And, 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 and a new kingdom comes. And throughout the Gospels, we have this idea of this new coming kingdom, this kingdom of God. Uh, Leo Tolstoy wrote a book about it, which if you want an interesting Tolstoy book, look up The Kingdom of God is Within You, this really cool atheistic, anarchist, Christian utopia that he wants to build. And it, and it comes back, let's, let's turn to Isaiah. Let's, let's turn to Isaiah for a second, everybody. It comes back to this vision of this kingdom. If Isaiah 11 or something. Okay, like, 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 listen to this. This is, this is Isaiah speaking in the spirit. The wolf shall lay down with the lamb, and the leopard shall lay down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child will lead them. 
The cow and the bear will graze, their young will lay down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Or, um... Uh, da, 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 da. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man that does not fill out his days. For the young man will die at a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. I, so, so all throughout the Bible, and this is just little snippets, all throughout the Bible, there, and, and probably in a lot, probably in most sacred writing, there is a vision of the way human sh society should be. Somewhere on the spectrum of uh, wild, innocent Eden and urban enlightenment New Jerusalem in Revelation. Somewhere in between or above or beyond that where we have lions and lambs laying down together, where the young guy dies when he's a hundred years old, and we've basically figured out how to live right. When nobody believes we can do that, just because we've never done it before, which is ridiculous. That's kind of like saying, I don't believe I'm ever going to die because it's never happened to me yet. I mean, of course it hasn't happened yet. If it had happened, I mean, it, would, it, it only has to happen once. Right. So so there's this vision then that all of these sages and prophets of all these different religions have in mind, and they're all a little bit different, but they all kind of come down to this this glorious, glorious peace. And so John's gospel, and we're gonna see Jesus' gospel, is a claim, this is a path to that. And I think we're gonna see in Luke, it's not gonna be it's not gonna be, you know, what you've heard in your preachers that you you know, you believe in Jesus and then whatever, like and so, and so John is preaching towards that with this message, and Jesus is going to unpack it more in even greater detail. And I think in Luke, we're going to discover it's not so much a spiritual thing. It's not going to be so much a mystic religion thing, but it's going to be a way of doing life and a way of considering what's valuable that Jesus and John believe will lead to this kingdom where the young people die when they're a hundred and lions and lambs play together and little children are in charge. So, so that's what got John thrown into prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, okay, now see, pause here. I feel like, like, like understanding this Essenine foundation, does it not sound like these people have joined the Essenines? Does it not sound like this is an initiation thing? I'm going to go with that for now. I'm going to go with John was preaching, everyone came out to him, Jesus included, because he, we know that he's into this stuff because of what happened when he was 12. So it just makes sense. Yo, my cousin's an Essenine. I'm going to check him out. And I think Jesus is about to have a religious experience here. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Or some manuscripts read, Today I have begotten you. Boom. Now, if, if we're willing to separate ourselves from belief for a moment, and if we're willing to separate this book from its position here in this collection of 66 other books, and, and we come at it as if it's a brand new thing, I would be saying, Whoa, look what's happened. We've had this preacher, John, and in and among the crowd, 
There's his cousin Jesus, who we know is special. They've all been baptized. And then afterwards, while Jesus is praying, you know, thinking about that experience he's just had, thinking about his future with this new group, behold, it's like, have you ever had that when you're praying? It feels like the heavens open and this light comes down on you and you hear a clear voice, not with your ears, but you hear a clear voice and it changes you and it changes you. That's like regeneration, isn't it? Today I have begotten you, right? This is now Jesus has been initiated. He has now been touched by that divine spirit that he's been seeking after since he was 12. And what's going to happen? Well, his ministry is going to start. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli the son of Maphet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esh, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Shemin, the son of Joseph, the son of Joda, the son of Joanna, the son of Risha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shikiel, the son of Mary, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosin, the son of Elimidim. the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. <sighs> One interesting side note, um, there's also a genealogy given for Jesus in Matthew, um, which is completely different from this one. There are three ways that preachers try to get around that. One, they say that one of these genealogies is actually for Mary, even though it says Joseph, and there's no reason to believe that at all. Two, they say that one of these lineages is his legendary lineage and one is his actual lineage, which, I mean, I don't understand what they mean by that. My, my, uh, my favorite, though, is to say it doesn't matter because it's just a story. Also, we can see Jesus very, very clearly the great, 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 grandson of God. But Luke wants to take us out for that moment, right? Right? Because something powerful has just happened. John has risen. We've seen his fall. And we've seen the spark pop up in Jesus. So he needs to take us out and give us that lineage, dropping a few very important names throughout, but connecting Jesus all the way back, not to Abraham, but to God. Right? So, so this is a divine, really divine lineage coming through. It's almost saying that it doesn't actually matter the circumstances of his birth because he's always been the son of God. But now Jesus has a new relationship with this Holy Spirit figure, which has descended on him in bodily form as a dove, concentrated Holy Spirit, which we've seen popping up in this book so far. Boom, right in him. Luke 4 verse 1, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Yes, he was. This is also interesting to me, too, because we see the word uh, forty days or forty nights or forty years popping up lots and lots throughout the Bible. My understanding of that is that forty days or forty years means a long time. 
right? You think about the children of Israel's wandering in the wilderness. Was it actually exactly 40 years? Or, as it explains in the context, until everybody who was an adult more or less died, right? Or they're reigning for 40 days and 40 nights. Is this exactly 40 days? A lot of my biblical literalist friends will say, yes, it must be. But when you really think, if you just give it a thought for a minute, that does kind of sound just kind of like a way of saying a long time. So Jesus being in the wilderness for 40 days, it makes me think, is this actually the period of Jesus' life where he was living in and among the Essenes? I know the classic Hollywood version is he's actually literally out wandering the desert under the sun uh, for 40 days and 40 nights. And it's like one of those miraculous things. But is it more likely that he was joining a community now and really starting to grind up against rigorous spirituality for the first time in his life, right? He's always had an interest, but now he's really digging into it. And this is when his trials come. Did it do 